Right, well, we've decided I'm, I'm beginning. So my background is in theater as a theater practitioner, kind of generally on the performance side as primarily now dramaturg, actor, and director. Um, so my PhD thesis is a new critical edition of this somewhat obscure Admiral's Men comedy, Look About You. And the idea is that in addition to ticking all the boxes that <laughs> give me a PhD, I'm coming at it from a sort of performance-friendly uh, background. So the idea is to, for me, to think about what is practicable about the information that is otherwise historical that would go in annotations and introductions, etc. Now this connects to dramaturgy for me, uh, I think professionally, because dramaturgs often get stuck with doing things that are useful for the theater company but not necessarily in personally engaging. I mean like writing program notes, which I don't know how many people read, um, and doing like mailings, etc. So um, there are some questions there about how we engage with the public in terms of marrying the sort of academic side through the practical side of theater specifically, which is kind of just my area. Um, when it comes to the written public engagement or the written sort of communication, I have some questions about passivity and reception um, because there's a sort of sense of putting the information out there counts as public engagement from theaters. Like, well, we're teaching them things, but the way we're teaching people often requires them to do all of the, all of the learning. They have to be active learners uh, from the very beginning. Um, so anyway, I'm just kind of putting that out there as a sort of thing to talk about, because what I'm slightly more interested in, or was before I got here today, is the idea of uh, public engagement as programming. Um, so the sort of simple definition of theater or performance is that you need one performer and one audience member. Uh, kind of frequently in the arts, I think, that audience member may be another <coughs> performer or another artist and is not actually reaching outside of a comfort zone or to people who maybe are just interested and don't know they're interested yet. So when people do programming, when they're looking at programming, there can be a, a sort of disconnect between the idea of creating art and the idea of creating something that's commercial. But I don't, first of all, see a problem with something commercial because hopefully I would like to make money someday, as I think most people would. Um, but I think maybe another way of looking at that is thinking about what's communal. Um, so things that are commercial successfully mean they have found a wide audience. They found a large group of people that are willing to give their time or other resources, their money or whatever, to absorb that product, to buy that product to engage with that product. Um, and I think that in theatrical terms, it is the most simple thing of finding your audience, which is what people always talk about. Um, so when people put on plays, they kind of ask some simple questions. Why this play? I mean, sometimes the answer is, because we need something that will bring in an audience, and Macbeth will bring in an audience. Um, but there are more questions. Why this play now? Why this play for this audience? Why this play instead of that play? So when you're looking at themes of work or types of work, you have to wonder, like, if there are some things you're uncomfortable with in Othello, but you're really interested in the themes of jealousy, why not do another play about jealousy? I call that, well, I tend to think of that as a sort of apology for the anachronistic awkwardness that comes from early modern drama or from another culture, from another time period. Um, so, sorry, that kind of ended there. Programming, that's one way of engaging the public. 
Um, and now, this is something that I actually don't know. This may be a th something that happens more in the States than it does here. Um, but there is also a question of what, what makes a classic, and that has a lot to do with public engagement. There's sometimes a sense that if you present something that is important, because for years people have said it's important, then like that should be good enough for your audience. Um, at one major regional theater in the US, when I asked the question, what makes something a classic, the answer was basically, the author is dead. <laughs> and now, thinking about all the people I know who are no longer with us and wrote things, I'm not sure that that qualifies to me as something worth <laughs> presenting to the public. Um, but I think that that's a really interesting question as well, is the sort of idea of what, how we're labeling things and what we think the reception of that label is. Um, yeah, so trying to connect the sort of practical questions of presenting things to the public with the academic research that I do is uh, sometimes difficult, but I think really exciting when we can all remember that the world of academia is chock full of ideas that are new and close readings that bring new things from text to light, and that at the same time the practice-based uh, world is brimming with questions that academics can answer and with creative solutions to questions that academics have already posed. And the, the thing that I guess maybe I'm also interested in is finding ways for them to talk that is an active and engaged mode of communication. Some theaters are doing things where they're allowing the audiences to kind of become archivists or the, the actors to become archivists. So instead of requiring, say, us to always be looking for archival material to put online to say, here's everything that's ever been done with Hamlet, opening up that sort of two-way street to say, have you done something with Hamlet? Why not, why not put it out here? Then we can all talk about it at the same time. Um, anyway, that's not a really great note to end on, but I'm gonna end it there because <laughs> I'm really actually more interested in sort of conversation and the questions about theater, which maybe not anyone here has, but um, good. That was a good downhill note. So Jose can like all right. really shine. Um, I, I think that the, um, what you were saying about the classics and what make, makes a classic is, is a really interesting question, thinking about Shakespeare, which is you know, the, the main uh, central topic of this, of this session. Um, because part of our work, I mean, I'm, I'm doing another critical edition of our, of our Renaissance play that is not by Shakespeare. And one of the things that we've been doing, I mean, Cassie in, in her way and, and editors of these plays is to get that repertoire of play, re repertory of plays out there. Um, it's not just, just about Shakespeare. There, there were other, you know, wonderful dramatists in the period that don't get programmed in theatres. And how, why not? Well, uh, they've not been done. Uh, there, is not, there, there isn't a, a critical edition or an edition of the play that, that is useful uh, for... Uh, putting on a, a, a production, for instance, and that's something that we, that we, we do with our work. Um, so my, my background is completely different. I, I did my undergraduate in, in Madrid in my native city and then came over to do an MA in Shakespeare and Theatre at the Institute where I continued, I carried on uh, into a PhD and, and my, uh, my uh, thesis would be an edition of, of Love's Cure or The Martial Maid, a play by John Fletcher and Philip Massinger in collaboration, probably around about 1615, so still in Shakespeare's lifetime, well, just about. Um, and, uh, and actually, performance is, is something that I've, I've been using a lot in my, in my work as well. Um, as part of the thesis, we staged the play uh, last year, which was tremendously exciting to see that play after so many years uh, in, a, in, a, in a full production, original practices, Renaissance dress, wonderful music, an all-male cast, uh, uh, 
which was quite a challenge to find 21 men to perform that play in Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, but um, so that was a way, actually. Um, we had to pitch that to the University of Birmingham for, to, to get some funding to, to do this, because it's not cheap to put on a, a production of a play. Um, and we, we had to devise a way of opening up the research to uh, the wider community and, and, and the general public. Uh, so we ended up opening a, a blog, tweeting about it, and actually inviting uh, well, the general public, the community, first in Stratford, and then we took the, the show up to Birmingham, to, to the main campus of the university. Um, and we did, it, we did it there for about five people, because th what, what, what we lacked was publicity. So uh, we didn't get it out there as efficiently as we should have. Uh, which is something that you know uh, had a, a negative impact on 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 the performance, but but it was great. I mean, to 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 do it there, um, and related to this, um, I'd like to talk to you about two things that I've been doing lately. Um, I've been um, the assistant to the editor of Blogging Shakespeare, which is a, a website that you might know. I actually could show you on the screen. Um, it's been online for a couple of years now. No, I don't want to restart now. Um, this is it. So it's targeted for, to the general public, uh, basically. It's, it's absolutely open access. Um, you get blog posts. There you are. Featured posts, recent posts, by all sorts of people. We, we have contributors who are uh, academics um, in, in higher education. We've got, that's, that's a logo of the Shakespeare Institute, actually. It's a blog post by Erin Sullivan, I think. Um, let's go back. Um, we've got school um, teachers, um, secondary teachers. We've got um, actors and directors and dramaturgs collaborating on this. So they basically send us a, a, a post about, about something related to Shakespeare that they are interested in, and we publish it. Uh, and it generates uh, a, a debate. I mean, there's, there's a whole comments uh, thread uh, at the bottom of the page, and that helps sort of uh, bring that material um, in real time to, to a wider um, audience. And related to this, um, th this, this uh, blog, by the way, is maintained by the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust and edited by Paul Edmondson there, who is the head of research. Um, and it's one of several blogs, you've got them here, Finding Shakespeare, Living Shakespeare, Remembering Shakespeare. And another one that is coming up, it's not still there, because it hasn't gone live, which is uh, Reviewing Shakespeare, which says launching summer 2013. So it's imminent, but not quite. Um, and again, it will be edited by Paul Edmondson in collaboration with Paul Prescott at the University of Warwick and Erin Sullivan at the Shakespeare Institute. Um, and this will be a tremendous tool once it, it gets um, online um, because it will contain a huge database of academic reviews of Shakespeare productions and productions of, of Renaissance drama. Um, I think we, all, we have all learned a lot uh, from Pete Kerwin and his Bardathan uh, because he's probably one of the most efficient and, and, and the quickest reviewers that I've ever met. Uh, he, he watches our show and, and gets the review online in, in, in just a few hours. Um, because the thing with academic reviewing, when, when one goes to see uh, a play uh, and, and, and you have to write a review for Shakespeare or Shakespeare, Shakespeare Bulletin or Shakespeare Survey or one of, the, one of the academic journals, is that you take a few notes, you go home, um, then you forget about it for a few months because the deadline is maybe, you know, next year. Um, and then, you know, in, in a few months' time, you get back to it, you can't remember anything, you just have a few scratchy notes that you scribbled while you were in the theatre and you couldn't see very well the, the, the 
piece of paper and you know maybe you, you actually wrote something on top of another line and you can you cannot read anything in your notes but then you produce a, a, re a review hopefully you know an insightful one um, and then you know it gets published uh, maybe in, in a few months time or maybe next year uh, which means that that review of that show um, you know is 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 uh, the, the review is, is delayed um, in, in, in in time so, for instance, I, I just handed in a review of the um, Globe productions of Twelfth Night and Richard III uh, that happened last year in September. I, I saw the bo both shows in September. So I've handed them in now to Gaillard Les Habitants, uh, the French journal, and then they might not get published until maybe the spring of 2014. Um, so they don't generate any debate, they don't engage with anyone, and, and it's in a closed publication. So what Reviewing Shakespeare will do is that it will be open access and everyone will be able to see that review in real time. So instead of, the, of, of lazy me waiting for a few months to write my review, I will write it straight away after seeing the show. It, it will get published, pre-published pre in Reviewing Shakespeare and then eventually in the, in the, in the journal, uh, which will open it up to the general public. Uh, we, we are opening the website actually with, with uh, full access to all reviews in, I think, for the time being, Shakespeare and maybe Shakespeare Bulletin, where we're still um, you know, trying that, but it, it looks very likely. So um, this will be a fantastic tool. Um, it will all be online, and again, well, it will all be online. Who will use it? Well, I don't know, and that's probably the, the, the question. So I'll, I'll end it there. Um, okay, uh, thank you. Uh, I was thinking this morning, um, and I'm sure this has come up a lot, uh, about how much I hate the word impact. Um, that sort of, that, that incredibly kind of, I mean, we've, we've, I know we've talked about the difference between kind of knowledge transfer and knowledge exchange, because it always comes back to be the impact agenda of higher education, that sort of very masculinist kind of um, smashing into something. Um, and when I was writing an impact case study for the University of Nottingham, where I currently work, um, we were under a lot of pressure to find the evidence of how our impact had changed people, which, which gives me great ideas of sort of, you know, trying to see the bruises on the faces of the people uh, that our work has impacted. Um, and I, I find the whole model very, very strange because my, my academic career has, has, has not really found a distinction between my research and my public engagement. My research has always come out of my public engagement, has been driven by my public engagement, and no almost no, apart from some really obscure notes on, on 1670s miscellanies of early printed drama, um, there's, there's very little of my work which hasn't in some way had a public a uh, engagement uh, aspect to it. Um, my, 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 my blog, which, which Jose very kindly mentioned, uh, that started during my MA research where I was trying to review um, the Complete Works Festival in Stratford and it was precisely that idea going on that there was this great festival happening and the, none, of, none of the academics were writing about it until, until what was going to be a couple of years later. So I thought, well, I'm only a master's student, but I will at least start trying to get this conversation going uh, now. I'll, I'll have my, my thoughts out there, see if anyone wants to respond. And actually, there is an enormous community of people who aren't academics who go to see Shakespeare in the theatre. Who knew? Um, but, you know, this, there is a, a very vocal, very intelligent, very literate community of people and one of the things we started finding through blogs like mine and through blogs Jose's talking about is just how many uh, how rich a conversation is going on and that's something which informed my ethos of research right away um, my PhD uh, with, with Jonathan who you met this morning was a collaborative doctoral award um, 
funded by the HRC in collaboration with the Royal Shakespeare Company to do another set of edition of obscure early modern plays, um, which we're hoping, one of which will be put on next year in Stratford, um, and we, which we're building a set of conferences around. So one of the plays is a play called Thomas Lord Cromwell, um, and our edition of that will be coinciding happily with the RSC's new productions of Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, the books about, uh, by Hilary Mantel about, uh, about Thomas Cromwell, which of course have recently won uh, the Big Book Awards um, and which have been put on in Stratford. Um, so my project has always been uh, based around an idea of, of what, what is wanted by people who aren't academics, um, which puts me, which I often find is still a very foreign idea in academia, the idea that your research interests might in some way be, be driven by other people, by people who aren't, who, and people who aren't funding bodies or who aren't kind of your faculty. The idea that you might actually be telling the public, uh, addressing something which the public want you to address. There's still a lot of resistance to that idea in the arts. And I think that's where the idea of public engagement uh, and knowledge, uh, knowledge exchange um, really comes in. I'm always interested by how much knowledge exchange is a way of us making it sound like knowledge transfer is two-way when actually it, 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 always, it not always is, and how often we actually allow the impetus and the questions to come from what's happening in the, in the wider sphere. Um, and that's where I was going to talk about some of the other kinds of public engagement I do. Um, but what happened when I, when I started listing the kinds of public engagement I do, whether it's talks to the theatres, whether it's uh, articles for theatre programmes, uh, whether it's uh, school sessions for people thinking of coming to university, um, whether it's my blog, in some ways um, those are all aspects of public engagement where I've not decided what I'm going to do. Um, to, give a, to give a very blunt example, uh, the, the Nottingham Shakespeare Society got in touch and said, would you like to come and do a talk for us uh, about your research? And I said, um, yes, of course, that'd be lovely. And I said, great, you may talk about the two gentlemen of Verona or Coriolanus, um, neither of which are plays I've worked on at all. So I, I researched two gentlemen of Verona, which seemed the more pleasing option at the time, um, and actually found some wonderful, wonderful stuff Matt had a very lively conversation with some very experienced uh, theatre-goers, um, and then built that into some work I was doing later on. Um, and in some ways, I don't mind being an academic for hire in that sense. I find it really rewarding, and I find it makes me read things which otherwise I wouldn't necessarily read myself. Um, and so the example I wanted to talk about was uh, the one which Emma and I have written a bit about, which is the, the Shakespeare authorship conspiracy theories. Um, because one of, the things, one, one of the projects I'm working on at the moment is a, book, is a book called Shakespeare in the Digital World, coming out with the other university press next year. Um, and that's uh, a book about how uh, Shakespeare studies has changed uh, at grassroots level in response to uh, changes in digital technology. And one of the big things is the Shakespeare authorship con uh, conspiracy, which has been going on for 120, 130 years or so, people doubting whether or not Shakespeare wrote the plays. Um, and handily, the systems that academia has have, have managed, uh, for the most part, to protect academics from ever having to answer that question. It's been very easily ignored uh, while communities of doubters form. They've never had a platform. They're barred from peer-reviewed journals uh, because, because um, they're, not, they're not felt to be meeting appropriate academic rigour in their standards. Um, they, they tend not to get academic positions. Uh, they tend not to uh, get a platform. The internet has changed all of that. There are now very, very 
prominent, very well-funded, very visible Shakespeare offship sites. Um, and over the last, uh, I'd, I'd say 10, 15 years, um, Emma may, may disagree, but uh, over the last 10, 15 years, the Shakespeare offship uh, conspiracy theories have been almost unavoidable because the internet makes it very clear that academia is not, has not been addressing them and that makes it look like we've got something to hide. Um, and what has actually come out of, um, uh, of, of this is that we've, uh, whether, however we position it, academics have been required to address these questions, if only to stop our own blogs having commenters clutter them up. I mean, they, that, there, is a, there are a system of people who will routinely uh, attack uh, Shakespeare blogs in order to say, well, this is all very well, but he didn't write any of the plays, did he? Um, and you get to a point where at some point you have to start addressing these things, or you have to start deleting comments arbitrarily, which I think opens a whole set of ethical questions, right? Um, these are taxpayers, these are people who are paying for the institution, and they want the institution to set out its position. Um, and this is something the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust have taken up, and you'll see, I'll pull up a Jose um, The Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, uh, after having resisted this for a very, very long time, um, how do I make that go back? Um, go up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There we go. Um, you'll see that um, Paul Edmonton and Stanley Wells um, combated this first by writing uh, an e-book, which you can download from the website, um, uh, which they made freely available um, outside the normal peer review context as their immediate polemic rebuttal to the question. Then curated a, a, an online conference called 60 Minutes with Shakespeare, where 60 academics practitioners and generally famous people, including the Prince of Wales and Stephen Fry, um, all contributed 60 seconds on one particular aspect saying why, why, why the conspiracy theories are ridiculous. And then that was followed in turn by the SBT putting out a, a, a new edited collection which came out a couple of months ago. Now, these are all responses, I would argue, to, uh, to a demand for public engagement which has not previously been met by, by Shakespeare scholars. I think this is one of the the big changing things about, about the, the digital world we're living in. Um, the ethos seems to have been, I think, that we don't have to answer this question because it's not methodologically interesting, it's not intellectually stimulating, um, we think it beneath our notice. The internet and the public engagement agenda have, have altered that, I think, to a point where I've said, we do need to engage with this, it's what we're being asked to address, it's what people would like us to address, and by engaging with this question, hopefully we're also giving back something to people who wouldn't uh, listen to it in other contexts. Um, I think that's been an interesting set of shifts, and I'm interested to uh, think about that, I suppose, as an example of knowledge exchange, where universities are producing something which has actually been very, very useful. A lot of the work that has come out of addressing the Shakespeare offshoot conspiracy has actually unveiled some fantastic new information, corrected some long-standing misconceptions within the Shakespeare community, um, and has done a lot of good things. And I don't think we'd have found those things if we hadn't been uh, required, forced, pressured, whatever, into addressing these questions. Um, and I think that's one of the interesting shifts, this, this shift to a genuine exchange where the question's being driven by non-academics. So, that's so interesting. I want to just ask everybody something about... I'll tell you what I was going to talk about quite, quite briefly. Uh, I was going to try and um, talk quite practically about po podcasting, my experience uh, podcasting. Um, partly because um, 
I found this such a sort of transformative aspect of my own um, professional life over the last couple of years, and partly because it's very, very easy to do. Um, and although you know it raises lots of uh, questions, um, some kind of practical, some ideological, uh, about what knowledge exchange might be, what public engagement might be, and that they are important. Uh, the other thing to say about it is it's really easy to do, and it's a really easy win. Um, and I mean that it's a win for the profession, it's a win for you personally, it's been a win for me personally. Uh, and so in, in some ways I feel quite zealous about it and think that this is something uh, people ought to try, try, try to do. Uh, so that's a way of putting out your work, putting out some part of your work, um, through, uh, usually through audio, uh, not through video. I wouldn't bother to do any, any of it, on, no disrespect to you, I wouldn't bother to do any of it on video because most lectures are boring videoed really I mean the, the, the bandwidth that the pictures take up is just not worth it's not worth the candy because really you're just you're just talking so audio podcasting really really easy to record yourself lecturing if you have um, an iPad or an iPhone or an iPod or something or other other devices are also available I realize um, just on the lectern uh, you don't need a in my experience you don't need a microphone you don't need anything additional to that you can just record you, you can record them while you're while you're doing them so, um, I'm sorry this is so sort of hands-on and practical, but um, this is what I wanted to, I think this is the one thing I wanted to convey to you. So, what I have tried to do is to record as many talks that I give in some of the contexts that uh, Peter's talked about. Um, so, one thing about serious public engagement is that it's enormously time-consuming. Um, and most of us are not going to become professional public intellectuals there are, there are some roles for public intellectuals in our society, but actually very few. Uh, and most of us maybe don't aspire to that uh, and also are not going to be it anyway. Uh, so uh, public engagement kind of face-to-face -face, uh, um, uh, in involves quite a lot of investment of time um, uh, and a, a sort of a moderate payback. You know, you reach the people who come the questions of you know, why people come and how they know, knew about the event and whether you talk to a closed society and all those kinds of things, they're, they're, all, they're all there. But when I do go and give those kinds of talks or when I go uh, sometimes to schools and talk or when I, and also, most importantly, when I give my standard undergraduate lectures, I try and record them. And then I put those on, onto iTunes U. Now, the uh, university does that for me um, and universities, almost all universities will do that. They have a platform on iTunes U, and they can upload them. But e equally, you can you can you know you can put lectures, uh, at, you, you can put podcast lectures kind of anywhere on any kind of website. And what's kind of surprising, and in some ways, what Cassie was talking about is really interesting to me about finding your audience. What's very very odd about the internet is people do find you, and you think how would they, um, how, how how would they find find you? But somehow uh, they do, um, and um, I think. Making that, uh, in some ways, m doubling up work that you're already doing, uh, talks that you're already giving, lectures that you have to give to undergraduates, doubling them up as both a live event to the, the audience, whatever that is, and as an archived uh, sort of performance that can be downloaded. It's just a really easy thing that has become absolutely um, second nature to me now. I would never not do. I would almost never not do it. I don't. I don't always put them up straight away. And sometimes I think, oh, that's a talk 
that maybe I'll maybe I'll wait and you know do something else with it. Or sometimes I think maybe I'll do that talk better and I'll use the recording of that one. Um, so so some self censorship is is useful. I think people like to listen to something that they think was really happening, and that will actually uh, people will put up with. Uh, um, not poor quality recording, but, but recording which has some ambient noise. Um, one, of, one of my, uh, my the first, people, first person to listen to them, I think, was probably my mum. And my mum said, somebody in your lecture's got a terrible cough, <laughs> which I hadn't really noticed. And then to, really brilliantly, in the next one, I was able to say, my mum says, one of you's got a terrible cough. You know, there's a, here's, a, here's a glass of water for the person who's got, sort of got the cough. And so you can make a deal of the fact that you know, you sort of know it's being recorded. I don't think there's any point being... Uh, uh, being kind of shy about that, you know, and I think I think the people who get in touch with me about listening to the um, recordings, they actually really like that part. Um, uh, one of my f uh, friends told me that the Bishop of Southwark listens to these podcasts, uh, these Shakespeare podcasts that I've done, uh, and uh, I knew that this would come back to me at some completely inopportune point, and about three weeks later when I was lecturing on Midsummer Night's Dream and the whole burden of my lecture on Midsummer Night's Dream was this is a really filthy play about sex and I was trying to adumbrate all these kind of sexual innuendos in it and I suddenly remembered the Bishop of Southwark. So in fact I was able to say, somebody told me the Bishop of Southwark listens to these, so just kind of shut, shut your ears. Um, uh, and that, that, that has given a sense that there is an audience, that you know there's an audience beyond the people you're talking to but that you're, you're also talking to particular people. Other people do podcasts quite differently, they say up much more uh, formally and in some ways much more professionally a kind of um, uh, a, a sort of secure and, and kind of monitored environment or oral environment in which uh, in, in which none of that other stuff comes in and that might be more that might be more suitable to you but I, I find it really extraordinary that all kinds of people are prepared to listen to 50-minute lectures uh, so they don't want them you know they don't want little bits they don't want in my experience they don't want five minutes although five minutes might be good they're perfectly able to listen to the, the kind of talk, the kind of lecture that you would give to an undergraduate, uh, or the kind of talk that you might give, um, you know, in, in another, you know, pre-performance or, or, or whatever the equivalent uh, might be. And it seems to me that, and I'll just finish with this point, that it's, it's something that, that you might think of. My experience has been that people listen to these podcasts much more readily than they read things. And I think that may be because people to listen to things while they're doing other things which are boring. And so that's a quite an important time slot that you have for people. So lots of people say, um, I, I listen to these while I'm commuting, or I listen to these, I don't know if I speak very qu quickly, perhaps I've listened to it on one and a half speed while I'm running. Um, or, you know, you doing something kind of boring where there's, there's time for your mind to do something rather than reading, which you pretty much have to be doing. You have to put time aside uh, f for that. Uh, so people will listen to things which they won't read, is my, is my point. And having your material out in, a, in an oral form rather than a printed form means that you can release it under certain kinds of, uh, say, a Creative Commons license or something, which I'm sure you've heard a lot about this, uh, this week or, or will do, um, and not stymie yourself, I think, to publish those publish a written form of those which has the different format that, that writing has uh, you know for in a different place okay so I don't think it's an alternative to research publication in the normal way but I think it's a way uh, into that lots of people who get in touch with me about, about podcasts say uh, I've bought your book or uh, is this going to be published in in some in some format 
And uh, the bit I wanted to end with was that maybe we could turn this round a bit, that one way uh, to think about um, uh, communicating research, being in a dialogue about academic research with a broader public, is actually to talk about it rather than to put out more written material. And that, you know, we're, we're in a... Uh, it's only how the academic world really is interested in the printed word, isn't it? That's mostly where our systems of value are clearest about, you know, how to, how to value that, how to, uh, how to manage that. So the printed word has a really, really high status within the academic community. I'm not sure it does have that status, actually, outside that. Uh, and so although, you know, it's, it's possible to get people to read research or to write for a wider audience, in some ways I think it's better to think about trying to talk to and with uh, a kind of wider audience. Now, clearly, podcasting is a very one-way model. Uh, it, it, this, is, this, this is kind of transfer uh, it, rather than exchange, and all the technical language of downloading, um, you know, which we've sort of imported into negative models of learning, you know, to download, uh, to transfer, you know, the, the cut and paste, those kinds of technical things we've used as, as derogatory terms in, in, in sort of ideas of academic practice. And I, ca I can't defend it against being a, a broadly one-way um, uh, one-way kind of uh, stream. What I've tried to do, uh, and this is because I suppose this is what my research agenda is really, what, what I suppose I try to do in, those, uh, in that format is just is to ask a lot of questions or to point out how questions emerge from material. And even if there isn't a formal way uh, that, those, uh, that people can answer those, you know, there isn't a discussion, there isn't the possibility of uh, actual discussion afterwards, I hope that they're reasonably open um, in a way for people uh, to, to, to sort of incorporate and, and reuse and push against uh, as they would like to. Thank you.